1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Erin L. Thompson to discuss her new book, Smashing Statues The Rise and Fall of America's Public Monuments, published by Norton in 2022. I'm thrilled to be interviewing Dr. Thompson here at St. Joseph's University, where she just delivered the annual Garrity Lecture in History. In the United States, the national debate over public monuments often frames the removal of statues as a revision of history, but Dr. Thompson suggests that we need to interrogate both the creation and removal of monuments to understand the essential role they play in creating national narratives and determining who is seen as an American. Using a set of remarkable case studies, including Mount Rushmore and Stone Mountain, Dr. Thompson demonstrates the complex ways in which these statues were suggested, contested, funded, physically created, and used symbolically by future groups. Her book allows us to better understand how Americans represent what they have built and what they need to rebuild in the American public landscape and the nation as a whole. Erin L. Thompson is an associate professor of art crime at John Jay College, Sydney University of New York. She's an expert in the deliberate destruction of art, analyzing the ways in which this destruction has sometimes harmed and sometimes benefited communities. Her first book, Possession, The Curious History of Private Collectors from Yale in 2016, was named an NPR Best Book of 2016, and her impressive public-facing scholarship includes the New York Times, Washington Post, Time, CNN, NPR, BBC, Freakonomics, and Smithsonian Magazine. I am delighted to welcome Dr. Thompson to St. Joseph's University and the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. So you have a very interesting background. You have a PhD in art history, but you also have a JD. So tell me a little bit about how these two streams of education um, have have brought you to writing about monuments and, and how we think about symbolism in the American context.
0: Well, I could pretend like it all makes sense, but it's really just I was getting my PhD in traditional art history. Uh, classical Greek and Roman and ancient Near Eastern and then I thought wait I'm never going to get a job uh, so I went to law school essentially thinking I was doing that instead that I was abandoning academia but uh, after working as a lawyer lawyer for a couple of years the John Jay College posted a position for a professor of art crime with a JD and a PhD and I was sort of like I, I guess that's me yeah that's me um, and it's been great because I've Got to more or less invent a field of what I am interested in and discover all sorts of ways in which I can mutually illuminate the history of art, but also the, the current art market, the way the law works through using artistic case studies, um, all while getting to um, explore new fields. So, uh This uh, book came out of my interest both in um, the history of art analyzed through a legal lens and also trying to look at how um, the law can help us change uh, the future of art. I really
1: appreciate the candor of the answer for for two reasons. One, you know, a lot of the people listening are graduate students, are academics who have to think about money and what it means to have a career and the extent to which uh, sometimes the path of academia can be constraining given people's interests, right? So sometimes we wouldn't see art history and law as interrelated, but I think as your other work has shown and this book as well, it, it's sort of necessary to have a grounding in both. So so, so thanks for being candid about it. Um, Tell me a little bit about how you came to this particular project about monuments. What's the origin story for this particular book?
0: Uh, I got very into Twitter over the pandemic to feel a sense of connection to, you know, people that I wasn't related to, Uh, and also the, the general political conversation, and I tweeted a comment about the toppling of a monument of Columbus in St. Paul, and that went viral. Uh, Tucker Carlson accused me of, uh, you know, leading an army of nihilists to take down statues. And I thought, the only nihilists I know are my kids. They don't even listen to me about bedtime. So this is just not really what I'm doing. But but what was more interesting to me was in the comments, and there are thousands of comments on this post, people were asking questions or saying things that I knew were not true or that I thought had been answered questions like, what's so wrong about Columbus? Or, well, people should just have a democratic vote on whether the statue should stay or go. And I realized there was space for me as someone who had these two interests in in art and in law to make a contribution to debates, um, which seem so often to just be people coming with their talking points, disagreeing and and not really progressing farther than, say, we can't erase history by taking on statues, as if that were the end of the conversation instead of the beginning of one.
1: You know, in reading the book, I, I mean, I would describe you as a really good translator. This is a Norton book. It's kind of a classically Norton book in that it translates these arguments that have been had in academia, but it combines original primary research. So you're doing two things. You're sort of, you've got the background of what's been done and you're doing the, uh, you know, in the archives um, primary research, but you're translating in a way that's very, very clear. So I, the way I read the book would be that it would be a very appropriate book to um, assign to an academic, uh, uh, to a, sorry, an undergraduate or to a graduate student. It's an important book for people who are doing research that, uh, in which maybe they're doing some of the theory, but they don't have some of the detailed case studies. They haven't been through the accounting books the way you have in the personal letters and it's clearly a general interest book. You don't need a background in art, politics, or law to read this book. So um, I think you do a great job in making that happen. It's a hard thing to do, that kind of translation. Uh, you have hinted at this already, but a lot of times the, the narrative is that neutrality would mean leaving up the statues. They're part of, quote-unquote, our history and the people taking them down are somehow interrupting a history like they're trying to be the transgressors and you have a lot to say about that so maybe as a way of kind of segueing, say, segueing to, the, to the bigger uh, claims of the book, you know, talk a little bit about how you see the building and the taking down
0: of the statues. So I you might say that my process for writing the book was asking a series of what I thought of as fairly stupid questions. Uh, like, wait, all right, all the headlines are statues are being removed in 2020. And there's all these news stories with the photos of them being loaded onto trucks, but where are those trucks driving to? Where do the statues end up? Or um, what history is actually Uh, motivating this statue that we are claiming that will be erased or does putting them in a museum actually work? Uh, So I really loved writing this book because I wanted to know the answers to these questions as well. Um, And I, I don't think the book comes up with any definitive solutions. My biggest point in the book is that communities should have conversations about monuments But I wanted to provide some information about what easy answers won't work, Um, whether it's to question what people actually read on signage. If you're saying, well, let's just throw up some signs or to point out that many states have laws that prohibit the removal of objects. I,
1: I see the book as help it's like a handbook towards having the conversation. so I think part of the claim is that to have the conversation, one would have to back up and look at why the statue was put in place, who funded it, what were they thinking it would symbolize and and in the process of it becoming a statue, what actually happened? so uh, the book is full of incredibly juicy and very, very colorful stories. But perhaps pick pick one and give us the short version so that people can understand what it is you're doing to help people understand the in a sense the origin stories of some of these statues so we can think about what to do with them.
0: One that I'm really proud of, well, you have know, to choosing between my babies. How could I choose stories one that I'm I'm proud of is um, there's a chapter on the Birmingham Confederate monument. From Birmingham, Alabama. Um, and I'm, I'm proud of that because I was able to talk to people who were involved in the taking of it down and, and fill in some of the backstory of why it went up and, and support how their feelings of this statue being oppressive um, uh, were... Not just sort of general vague in the air, but this is exactly why the statue went up or the the monument went up. So I am interested less in who is represented on monuments and much more in monuments as monuments. So asking who paid for them? uh, What did they say about their motivations? So the Birmingham Confederate monument uh, went up in two parts. Uh, in Birmingham, which was founded in 1871, well after the close of the Civil War. So it was uh, a turn-of-the-century monument to a past that the city didn't even have. Uh, And both of these parts, the base and the obelisk that sits atop it, went up uh, explicitly in response to interracial unionization efforts of area miners, So uh, if you read the dedication speeches, which were reported at great length uh, in the local newspapers, they're all about how Confederate soldiers sacrificed themselves, um, had no thoughts of financial gain, just paid attention to their betters in order to stand up against what one speaker called the hideous specter of threatened racial equality. Uh, They're really not... Hiding what they yeah, were doing. Not subtle. Not subtle. Um, and what what specifically they were doing was trying to break this interracial cooperation in the union, trying to get white working class men to identify with their confederate fathers or grandfathers and say, no, um, maintaining the color line is more important than, than getting a living wage. Um, uh, right. Class mm-hmm. class cooperation versus yeah. uh, being split through racial um Separation, Right. And I was especially interested in this question of what did uh, monuments mean to white Southerners? What message were they intended to send? Because today you so often hear people saying, well, these monuments are about heritage, not hate. Um, but I, I wonder, do they, again, another of my stupid questions, do they really praise the heritage um, in a way that everybody would agree with? Um, and then the story of the Birmingham Confederate monument, I pick up uh, from its beginning to its, its end um, when uh, the members of the city start to want to take it down in the aftermath of Dylan Roof's 2015 massacre. And it becomes uh, an incredible debating point within the state of Alabama. So Birmingham is a fairly liberal city within a conservative state. And the reaction to Birmingham citizens saying, we're thinking about taking down this monument, which um, since the 70s, Birmingham has been a majority black city. So it's a monument, again, to a the city didn't even have that denies the humanity, the equality of the majority of its citizens. Um, and the state responded to this by passing uh, a law protecting monuments. So it could not come down. Uh, so in, in 2020, the current Birmingham mayor, Randall Woodfin, ordered it to come down. He was he's breaking state law. He, did, he was the first public official to take down a monument um, after the death of George Floyd. And he thought he might be risking criminal prosecution or removal from office. Uh, so I really wanted to, to talk about this decision that he made and also to point out that this continues. So I track in the book um, the many legislative proposals. Almost every state has considered strengthening um, their preservation laws for monuments, increasing criminal penalties for removing them. So a lot of people are talking about 2020 as a year where we started considering our public art, whether or not um, things should remain on view, but it's also kicked off a real protective process that might be even more long lasting.
1: Wow. And you can really see the intersection of law and, and art. Are there any uh, federal laws involving art and monuments? Is most of this state law, how many places have local ordinances that affect what will happen?
0: This um, most of the monuments are under state or local control Uh, A surprising number were put up through, I guess you would call them public-private alliances, heritage groups that have um, still technically retained control of a monument. Um, There are a lot of controversial federal sites with monuments, like uh, a lot of Civil War sites, Arlington National Cemetery, etc. So those are... in some ways easier, some ways not, to change. Everything is very slow-moving process, more or less.
1: So give us an example of a federal, because it's interesting. You think about Washington, D.C. It's it's kind of monument city, and you can't really turn one way or the other without seeing some monument that symbolizes sometimes conflicting narratives of, of the what we consider to be the American experience or who is an American, but what's one kind of federal one that you find interesting?
0: Well, the U.S. Capitol building is absolutely shock a block full of representations of, I'm making big air quotes here, Native Americans, um, because they're just very generic or mishmash of Indian accessories um, put up there only to support the cause of westward expansion. So it'll be Daniel Boone killing Uh, a warrior or the death of Tecumseh. These are both images from the U.S. Capitol Rotunda. Uh, And it is almost a a politically toxic issue to try and question these because it, it opens up such a can of worms. Or even what I open the book with is the Statue of Freedom, an allegorical representation of the idea of freedom that still tops the U.S. Capitol building, which was made in part through the work of an enslaved man, Philip Reed, who was owned by the sculptor who was casting it in bronze. So I opened the book with the idea that it's really no surprise that white supremacists took over the, the Capitol building uh, for a brief period, fortunately, but it, the the building, the artwork itself uh, exists to was created to, to put forward these ideologies, uh, and it, it, they the artwork still continues to do this, even if we ignore it, even if these monuments might seem something that's only there to gather dust or to have pigeons perch on them. They're still able to be activated.
1: So. Um... You talk in the book about North and South, and you you have a a remarkable chapter on Stone Mountain that you just actually presented here. Students were very interested, students at the event, students back in my class were just completely taken by your description of of, of the ways in which money from the Ku Klux Klan, for example, was was funneled into the project and the the various... um, overlays, you should say a little bit about race and both North and South in terms of, of, of monuments. I mean, the book is it really is making a case that it's not simply just about Southern
0: monuments. Right. I, I get accused sometimes on Twitter of, of Yankee-splaining the Confederacy, but I'm also uh, fairly critical of Northern Union War monuments too, because the, Benefit of mon- the human purpose of monuments is to set a course for a community. They're to show us aspirational ideas of what our society should look like, who should be respected, who should hold power. So after the close of the Civil War, there's a real national project of figuring out what it meant to have granted political equality to former enslaved people. And both North and South monuments agree that what that should mean was not true equality, um, but that there should be unity between Northern and Southern white populations and that African Americans would remain in sort of this crouched level of subservience. So when you see even on a Northern monument, a figure of an African American person, it's not a soldier. It's not someone who fought for his own freedom as so many um, black soldiers did both from the, the North and the South. Uh, it's someone in ragged clothing, kneeling or crouching, receiving emancipation as a gift. Uh, and that precisely reflected what the people who paid for the monuments wanted to be true of the position of, of black Americans as not quite equal. Uh, and I think this, message is even more harmful in a continuing way in northern monuments because nobody's questioning it. Uh, A lot of people are starting to look with a raised eyebrow, at least at Confederate monuments. But the more you look, the more you see all sorts of, of ideologies encoded in our monuments that we probably don't actually want to characterize our nation anymore.
1: When do we see monuments that are more directed at particular uh, Black Americans, somebody like Frederick Douglass or Martin Luther King uh, or Harriet Tubman, Uh, do we see those monuments being put up? When does that happen? And what are some of the motivations for the communities that create those monuments?
0: It's tricky to answer that question because there's a difference between what we can see now and what was attempted, what was put up and removed, what was denied permission. Um, There are very early attempts to memorialize Black Union soldiers that get shoved into some segregated portion of of a graveyard instead of having a place in front of the city hall, for example. So there's a lot of in history or repressed history of celebration of a more diverse set of honorees. Um, but in terms of when do you finally get national attention? The, the first um, memorial, to, national memorial to the Union's black soldiers was put up in Washington in only 1998, a fact that continues to astound me. Um, and I think there is more push for making those commemorations. But again, our our ideas of what a monument should be are changing. So maybe we will see more diverse set of honorees in monuments, or maybe we'll change our ideas of what monuments should be entirely.
1: Right, which is a really interesting case. Should you put up a statue of Ida B. Wells in a sense to balance representation, or should you rethink what it is that we do to signal to the community who we are, what we are, and, and what we expect um, by way of, of various treatment. You, you have a really interesting example in the book of how women have been depicted or not depicted in statues. So um, talk a little bit about, uh, sorry, monuments. Uh, talk a little bit about, what that means, um, when do we start to see depictions of women, who who gets depicted, um, and how do they perhaps not, I found, necessarily uh, match with our expectations.
0: I talk in the book about the very first American public monument um, dedicated to a, a woman who actually existed, as opposed to, to some sort of allegorical angel or whatever. Um, a statue of Hannah Dustin, of whom there are actually two statues in New England um, from the late 19th century. Uh, She was kidnapped by Abenaki warriors uh, during King Philip's War uh, and became someone who's a a very interest in the period. She's written about by Cotton Mather, who interviewed her about her experience um, because she escaped. Um, Her infant child died during the experience. Uh, She uh, came back to uh, her home in Massachusetts riding a stolen canoe with a handful of uh, scalps from her captors, Uh, not from the warriors, but from the the more uh, civilian family group that she had been allotted to and was rewarded by Massachusetts, uh, a handsome reward for these scalps. Uh, and so she became a symbol in the era, and then even more popularly in the 19th century, of through a lens through which um, American settlers could see themselves in the way that they wanted. As we moved westward, um, you could see yourself as someone who was calm, who was reacting only to unjustified violence. Um, as someone who is more a victim than uh, an aggressor uh, instead of seeing oneself as a more realistic picture of, of white control of um, the rest, And then after uh, there was essentially no more indigenous resistance available um, after Westward expansion was complete. uh, Hannah Dustin fell almost completely out of historical memory. She had been in all the textbooks, all sorts of popular uh, treatments, and now people have entirely forgotten her and she exists in this fairly bedraggled marble statue um, in a small town uh, in Connecticut uh, at the, the site of uh, where we think that she had had um, committed this was murder in order to free herself, and it was interesting to me to see a, a woman's life essentially manipulated in the service of. Um, economic <laughs> manifest destiny and right. And, and a push. Yeah. yeah. And she's shown in this way, her wearing a, a flowing nightgown and it's drooping off her shoulder, almost exposing her breast. She looks like, I don't know, a tragic lady Macbeth or something. And, and it, she's holding what in one hand looks like a bouquet of drooping poppies, but is actually the skulls. In the bronze statue in Massachusetts, uh, she has the hatchet that she used yeah. in London. So these incredibly weird images of of violence and despair. Uh, and this is often the case for the role of the fairly rare role of actual women in public monuments. Uh, they're there to stand as a symbol for something else, to justify the... Actions of, of others. Um, I didn't write too mu- as much as I would have wanted about the the role of women. There's a whole fascinating history of monuments to the women of the Confederacy, for example. But other people have have treated that, uh, and I wanted this book to be more original contributions to so to fill in some gaps that uh, I could do.
1: Uh, I found it really interesting how the Hannah Dustin specificity um, and also the sexualization with the the, 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 bare shoulder contrasts with the allegorical figures that we see all over the federal and other state monuments um, that also have this, uh, again, unspecific you know generalized stand in for liberty, but, often with the kind of the drapey, the exposed, the breast as, as very, very important in a sense, the, the exposed woman. You see them sometimes around uh, civil war monuments. Um, uh, We're recording here in Philadelphia, but you know, in the, in the Northeast.
0: Well, let's be equal opportunity though, because there are a whole lot of Confederate monuments that represent the ideals of the Confederacy in the form of a super handsome young boy. A young man, not like the boy, but um, like an
1: adolescent, somebody who shows the the, the sort of uh, uh, untainted manhood.
0: Yes. And this is something that monuments can do. They speak to a different part of our brain. So it's extremely difficult when you're looking at what's essentially like a (laughs) pinup photo, a pinup monument of someone very attractive to stop yourself from following along with that impulse towards attraction. And, um, so that's part of the difficulty of contextualizing monuments or just putting up some signage. You know that signage speaks to a different part of your brain than the ooh, that guy's really cut. yeah,
1: so you're um try very hard in the book uh, not to offer simple solutions. Uh, and you know, you're asking people to look at their history with open eyes and and then have the conversation about what to do with the statue. Uh, do you have a couple of examples or an example of a statue that was um, recontextualized, reclaimed? Are there are there some stories of successful communities that had such a discussion and then got to another side with the statue? I
0: have to say that the book is more about bad examples than than good ones. But <laughs> I've been following, for example, something that I I talked about in the book briefly the Robert E Lee statue in Charlottesville that was at the center of the deadly, you might, the right rally in twenty seventeen. I didn't write a fully about it in the book because I knew it was still happening. Um, So I didn't want to be instantly outdated, but I've written um, a feature article for Harper's Bazaar since the book came out about that statue, which has finally been removed after a change in state law and the, the final settlement of a lawsuit that had been trying to keep it in its place. Uh, And the City Council of Charlottesville voted to turn over ownership of the statue to a local nonprofit, the Jefferson School, uh, who had proposed to melt it down and commission an artist to make a new statue from the bronze to better represent the community. Uh, But just this past December, there's another lawsuit because plaintiffs who weren't awarded the statue, who were local uh, Confederate heritage groups, have said that this is unjust. They're asking the courts to um, take the statue back, award it to them, or if it's already been melted down, they want to recast it into Civil War cannon for display on battlefields, which I don't know how that's supposed to work time-traveling-wise. But these issues are still very much ongoing, but I think if that if that happens, that will be the first definitive removal of a Confederate monument um from, from public view ever. Um, and uh, would be very exciting. Yeah, you know, I'm a classicist, so I think that the The destruction, the repurposing, the recycling, the reuse, the modification of monuments is what is characteristic of human history. So it's a little bizarre that America has had this um, resistance to change for so long.
1: It's funny because we're so new, and I wonder if, if there's more experience um, around the world with the layering of monuments. You think about the Pantheon and how the gold is taken from the Pantheon and put into the Vatican, and there's, there's a kind of a blending there of, of, of turning your back on the pagan to, to, to move to the Christian. Maybe we haven't completely worked that out question mark, or, you know, maybe this is just mapping on to our politics. One of the strengths of the book I found was that as I was reading, you were giving me a timeline, and the timeline helped me understand why some symbols might not mean what people were saying that they meant. So so whereas right now we have conversations like it's heritage, not hate. I think the way you tell your stories and then sort of have a moment in which you say, and this is when the state of Georgia decided to put the Confederate battlefield flag into its state flag. It hadn't been there and it happens to coincide with fights over um, civil rights and voting. So I think that's in, in, in just incredibly helpful as a reader um, uh, for, for me. I, I want to ask you a little bit about method because you, you have these two really interesting and very different sets of training So tell us a little bit about how much of this book involved the archives. Um, Tell us a little bit about the kinds of documents, if you're willing to share like an aha moment where like you came across something that you thought you would never uh, think you could find or something that changed your
0: thinking about a particular monument. I would love to hear it. Sure. So I think the benefit of having these two different trainings in art history and the law has been that I can be skeptical about the claims of either of those. (laughs) So there have been lawyers who have written about preservation and removal of monuments, but when they read some art historians say, well, this is a very important, beautiful monument, they're like, okay, okay. And I'm like, "Mm, actually, no, that's mass-produced ridiculousness. Or and even more on the art history side, when they're like, oh, but it's the law that can never be changed or questioned that this thing has to beat up. I'm like, you know, people made the law too. So let's, let's do some back and forth. Um, the methodology of the book was even stranger because I wrote it all during the pandemic. So the saddest artifact of the whole process is this elaborate spreadsheet where I have, all right, here's the call number for this book in the library that I'm near and then a a bit farther away. And if I have to go down to, you know, uh, none of those libraries ever opened while I was writing. Uh, So I am the type of person who likes to know everything that everyone has ever thought about a topic before weighing in on it. So for my first book, I was, you know reading everything, doing that great thing where you can be in the library and sit on the floor of an aisle and just look at all the books down the shelf, Um, could not do that for this one. So it really pushed me to do several things. First, to seek out monuments that I thought hadn't been written about extensively because I didn't want to miss what people had to say. Um, And pushed me to do much more historical research, uh, so finding monuments where the archives had been digitized, especially monuments um, that had historical newspaper reporting on them, um, because there are just all sorts of dedication, speeches, letters to the editor, artists, fighting back and forth, uh, and I was able to really trace the history, the early history of monuments, and then find monuments where I could connect the beginning of the story to the current updates, um, and not just relying on newspaper reports, but the the book forced me to do something which is absolutely terrifying, namely pick up the phone and, and interview people. I ended up interviewing um, the, the mayor of Birmingham, the indigenous activist Mike Portia, who had toppled the statue of Columbus that I tweeted about in the first place. Oh, wow, <laughs> that's a wow moment for a researcher. Yeah, and it was quick because we were information sharing, so he hadn't necessarily known about some of the early history of the statue. And and I wanted to ask him, well, what what were your motivations? Because so many newspaper reports were were talking about his motivations as if they understood what he was trying to do. Um, But no one had really interviewed him, which is incredible. Uh, So I got to help bring his story out there, which was very important to me.
1: There's some part of me cynically that understands that why he wasn't interviewed because it seems to me that some of the argument about culture war, about the monuments isn't actually about the monuments. It's about other issues of politics, and the monuments are stand-ins. So in some way, what for me distinguishes this book is a real focus on the monuments and where they come from, but with a lens that includes politics and other motivations that people have, but trying very, very hard to, to, to look at the origins and trace them And there are many permutations uh, along the way. You mentioned newspapers and you're using newspapers. And as I was reading the book, I thought a lot about the ways in which you point out how newspapers are amplifying the messages of the creators and funders of these statues. It's almost as if they're using the newspapers to convince people of why this would be a a good idea. And so I wanted to ask you whether you thought that that was a fair uh, representation of what you're trying to do. And also the extent to which you saw differences in the black press and the white press in the period that periods that you were
0: looking at. Definitely. You can't read these newspapers as straight reports of fact. They are people attempting to put forward and, idea of what they're doing. Um, but it's just that in the in 1898, for example, like people are running explicitly white supremacist campaigns. So they are proud of the fact that they are racist. Um, you have to ask more questions to figure out what actually is happening around this rhetoric in the newspapers. So for example, I talk a lot about how the first sculptor of Stone Mountain, Gutson Borglum, who would go on to sculpt Mount Rushmore, um, was in desperate financial difficulties. He had a lot of debts that he had no way of repaying, so he's using the newspapers to talk up this uh, monumental project, not because he's some big fan of the Confederacy, but because he needs money. But the newspapers are not saying, By the way, Mr. Boardroom is broke. I knew that from my other research. I was putting together work from his letters, figuring out between the lines in his other writings with this newspaper thing. Or in Birmingham, I noticed all the speeches were talking about self-sacrifice and economic duty. And I started to wonder why, and then I, you know, you got to read the rest of the newspaper and figure out, oh, there's this strike that's happening at the same time. Um, the I wish I was able to say more about the difference of the coverage between black and white newspapers, but the inequality still persists. So not as many black newspapers are digitized or accessible. So again, if I was able to have more time in the archives, I could have said more about that. But I, I reconciled myself to thinking that um, the the white perspective on these monuments has been under-theorized. Uh, so I was able to do that. You know, Americans of color have known that these monuments are bad news for a long time. I didn't need to repeat something that, you know, Frederick Douglass first said. Uh, I wanted to know what it meant to a white working class citizen of Birmingham. who was thinking about joining a union or not.
1: You know, over the years that I've been the uh, host of uh, co-host of this podcast, I've seen that in many books, this access to the black press presents a problem. So for some people who can get into a particular archive or are lucky enough that A particular local paper that's related to their case study, in fact, has a fabulous archive. You know, they're dealing with the Amsterdam News or something. But there is also a new digitizing project going on, which um, I will look up who's doing it and forward it to you. So there's, there's hope for the future that more... Uh, you know, using using the digital archives for newspapers is great, but you realize you're not getting most of the ethnic newspapers. You're not getting some of the local newspapers. It's it's interesting. Uh, in your talk, uh, which was focusing on the Stone Mountain case, uh, there were some questions uh, in the Q and A, and you mentioned concentration camps and the manner in which they try to control who can use their space such that they have control over the meaning of the space, that it can't, as you put it in the Q&A, be transformed into a neo-Nazi symbol. Like, look how exciting the death is. And uh, the talk was a couple of hours ago, and I was thinking about, so in the United States, in monuments that are on public land, how is this managed given that the right to ask for a permit can't be usually denied on the basis of ideology or viewpoint discrimination? So how how do sites that are publicly owned in the United States deal
0: with that reappropriation? It's it's tough. Um... The Stone Mountain, the, the clan keeps asking you to burn crosses there as they had historically until the, the 90s. Um, and you can deny that on the basis of fire hazard and uh, a risk of violence. Um, but you are supposed to let people use sites as they will, but, uh, which I think is fair. Um, what I want to point out is that a facade of neutrality is not actually neutral if the monument was designed to reinforce ideologies of white supremacy. If you just leave it there, that's what it's going to be putting out in the world. So the idea of just you can move something to a museum and and leave it there as if a museum is some magical anti-racist force field around it that (laughs) will take care of all the problems, that's, that's not Good enough, and I worry too that there are really interesting proposals to display removed monuments in the state um, that they were removed, covered in paint, still, etc. Um, but won't that look more, even more like a martyrdom for some people? Uh, so, how do you, as a museum, fight to make it a truly neutral space where, where multiple people can have their points of view respected? Versus these monuments coming in already being so pro white supremacy, you gotta you gotta knock that down a bit, I think.
1: So this is a big book. You have like, remarkable case studies in each chapter. There's there are common themes, but there's also just a, a lot of deep diving. Um, is there something I haven't asked you about that you think is really important to the book that we should make sure
0: our listeners know about? Oh, you're pretty good. You're good at this. I don't know uh, if anything is standing out except for, you know, like my editor's biggest comment on my first draft is, "You need to tell people what to think." I was so resistant. I just I want it to be the stories and the information, and then people can make up their own mind. So, so I did. A seed a little bit and put in some arguments, uh, but I still think of the book as, a, like you said, a toolkit towards having these debates. And I try and encourage readers to do the same thing, because this is an era where we're, we've reopened the question of, of public art, what our public spaces look like. And I want everybody to participate in that conversation and to make their voices heard. You know, experts don't have any better ideas about what to do, what the future should look like than anybody else. So it's a really exciting time to be a historian, but also just to be a citizen making these um, decisions.
1: Well, I know that Norton has great editors um, and they certainly did a beautiful job on the cover art, but I would say it's a great contribution um, that you resisted that, because I think I found one of the great pleasures of this book in that you were resisting telling us what we must do with Stone Mountain or what would be the best thing to um, do with Hannah, Dustin. On the other hand, uh, there, there are assertions in this book, and I think one of them is there is no neutrality in, you can't create neutral spaces for these monuments. They have a very long, timeline and sometimes how they were conceived was not how they were experienced by the people in the spaces that was transformed over time and we can transform it and sometimes it's very important to understand what they were there for that we somehow are not thinking about Um, tell me what you're working on now and I know this book just came out, so I don't mean to put pressure on you, but you, you, you strike me as the type who probably does have something else. What, what, what are you thinking about right now or working on? Uh, I just signed the
0: contract for the next book, uh, also with Norton, about art forgery. Oh, Art Forgery. Well, um, I figured I should get a fun book after.
1: (laughs) After this book. This is a hard book to write. And uh, I often admire the authors who sort through the more challenging and difficult history. Well, I hope when you finish the Art Forgery book, you will come back and and talk about it with us. Uh, I have been talking to Erin L. Thompson about her book, Smashing Statues, The Rise and Fall of America's Public Monuments, published by Norton in 2022. Thanks so much for joining us.